Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as our special guest speaker delivers this week's message. Well, good morning, church family. (laughs) Thank you. I am excited to be here preaching for the very first time this morning. There is no place I would rather be preaching than Crossbridge. I love my church. I am so blessed to say that for more than 30 years, this has been my church family. God has been faithful to this church, and I believe that the best days of this church are ahead of us. Who would have thought that when I came here to Crossbridge, which was Long Island Bible Baptist Church at the time, as a 12-year-old, that I would now be training to be an elder here. My family and I came to know Christ in this church, and we were all baptized in our old church building, which is now the youth room in the back there. I grew up at this church, and now I get to watch my children grow up in this church. God is good. Yes. I met my beautiful wife through this church, and Kate has encouraged me to be a more godly man. My four awesome boys are sitting right up here in the front, and I pray that they would be the future leaders of this church. Just a little testament to how awesome God is. When my wife and I were planning a family, she said that she would like four boys. And I was definitely on board with this. I was already forming my wrestling lineup in my head. I then told her that I would like to have twins, because you know, twins are awesome. (laughs) And God gave us exactly what we wanted. God is good. Thank you. Before I get to the message, I want to thank those guests of mine for attending this morning, or even possibly listening to this passage on YouTube. I invited you here because I care about you. It means a lot to me that you came or you took time to listen to this message on YouTube. I have in attendance today some teachers that I teach with, some wrestling coaches that I coach with or have coached with, some former wrestlers that I coached, a student that I taught, neighbors, friends, my church family, and my family. It's like my worlds are colliding this morning. I'm so thankful that somebody shared the gospel with me and invited me to church, and God changed my life. My prayer this morning is that God would get a hold of your heart. I also want to thank Pastor Nate that he has challenged me, mentored me, and trusted me enough to accurately preach the word of God this morning. I have never preached before, so I'm very nervous. However, every time that I've gotten nervous about preaching this morning, I remind myself that I am among family and that God can use even someone like me a wretched sinner saved by grace to accomplish his will. And lastly, today, as I preach God's word, I don't want to come across as a Christian that has it all figured out. I feel like that whenever I teach from the Bible, God has a way of speaking to me the most. I've entitled my message this morning, Judgment Day. And the text is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. If you don't have your Bible with you today, we have Bibles in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take this as our gift to you. 
So let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. I ask that you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You may be seated. For a long time, I thought that the rain and the floods and the wind that beat upon that house that they were the storms of life, the trials and the struggles that all of us go through. I thought that these verses were saying that if you build your life on Jesus and biblical principles, that you'll be able to stand, withstand the trials of life, but if you don't, you will fall. And there is great truth in that. However, if you look closely at the context here, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the final judgment. My first point this morning is that Jesus is the only solution to our sin problem. In order to get the complete picture, let's take a look at the context of these verses. It starts off with Jesus saying, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Well, what are these words? What are these words that Jesus is saying? We see that these verses are recorded at the end of Jesus' teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the repeated theme is the kingdom of heaven. In reality, this sermon could be thought of as a sermon about how to get to heaven. It tells us how we live when Jesus is our Lord, and that is a radical lifestyle that is very different from what the world would suggest. It is not just saying that Jesus is Lord and then living however we want. A few months ago, I did a series during our Wednesday night devotions on the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount, it starts with the Beatitudes, are also known as the blessings that come along with the foundations of the Christian life. And many times we think of materialistic things. We think of happiness when it comes to being blessed. And happiness may indeed come along with being blessed. However, being blessed does not depend on what is going on in the world around us and it does not depend on materialistic things. One definition of blessed that I prefer is that the happiness that comes to the soul from being favored by God, the happiness that comes to the soul by being favored from God. It is the state of people that are right with God. Another definition that I've heard is that when you experience blessedness, you're experiencing the applause of heaven. The Beatitudes reveal the character of kingdom citizens. So let's turn back a page in our Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And right off the bat, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And let me start by being very clear that there is nothing, 
that we could ever do to earn our way to heaven. God created everything, but people are his prized creation. God made people in his own image. He created people to have a relationship with them. However, that relationship was broken by sin. We all have a sin problem. And sin is acting or behaving in a way that does not conform with God's characters or commands. It is an act of rebellion towards God. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we need to have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God. The thought that people are generally good is a lie from the devil. We are born sinners and our hearts are wicked. If you don't think people are evil, you should watch an episode of Dateline sometime. <laughs> the episodes usually start off portraying a family that is happy, they live in this quaint little town, they're good people, until one of them turns into a murderer, right? I remember watching an episode with my wife once, and the guy says, and I'll do my best impression of his voice, he says, could this deacon's wife really commit murder? <laughs> I looked at my wife, and I jokingly said, don't you be getting any ideas, honey. <laughs> but the answer to this is yes, that the person on the show, she could commit murder. If David in the Bible, a man after God's own heart, could commit murder, then so could all of us. And if you don't think that we are born sinners, you should hang out with young kids more often. I have plenty of experience in this. A four-year-old could hate a toy, but the moment he sees someone else playing with it, he wants it, right? You don't have to teach a toddler to sin. It comes naturally. <laughs> Some of you parents are, uh, are laughing at that one. Yes, it comes naturally, right? And our sin would not be a problem except that God is righteous and holy. If you committed a crime, it wouldn't be a problem if there was a corrupt judge. God is righteous means that he always does what is right and what is good. And the Bible says that there is no darkness in him at all. So therefore, the poor in spirit that I mentioned before must be those who realize that they are a sinner in need of a savior. And when we think of the word poor, we think of a beggar who is totally dependent on others for their needs. Well, those who are poor spiritually are totally dependent on God. What it is saying here is that the way into the kingdom of heaven is to realize that we have nothing. We bring nothing to the table. We need Christ. John Piper said, the only people who will ever come to Jesus are those who know they are spiritually and morally crippled. Charles Spurgeon said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be, right? We are far worse. It's true. We are worse than what other people think us to be. The Bible says that there are none righteous, no, not one. In fact, any righteousness that we think we have is as filthy rags before God. The only righteousness that we could ever have is the righteousness that comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. 
Standing before God in Christ means that we trust his righteousness and not our own. It is by the grace of God and on the basis of Jesus' righteousness that God accepts humans. This acceptance is also referred to as justification. It's just as if we never sinned. Our sin comes with the price, a heavy price, a price that we could never pay on our own. We need a Savior. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What this verse is saying that what we all deserve for our sin is death. And the death that is talking about here is not just a physical death, it's the second death, the spiritual death, which is far worse. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. It is a gift. There is nothing that you could ever do to earn this gift. And this, this is the greatest news ever. God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to be our savior. In John 3:16, some of you may be familiar with this verse. It says, "For God so loved the world, so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life." Romans 5:8 says, "But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." That's amazing to think about. Jesus lived a perfect life and paid the price for the sins of the world on the cross. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus took on God's just wrath in our place. And I'm so thankful he did. Jesus provided a way for our relationship with God to be made right, the relationship that was broken by sin. Jesus is that narrow gate by which we must enter through. And that leads me to my second point. My second point is that there is only one way to get to heaven. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, this gate that leads to life. There are not many ways to heaven. There is only one way, and that way is very narrow. There is nothing that we could ever do to earn our way through that gate. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. While I was preparing for the sermon, I learned that Christians, they used to be called people of the way. And that way is Jesus. In Luke 13, Jesus said that we should strive to enter the narrow door. Jesus is asked if there are a few that will be saved, and listen to his response. 
And someone said to him, this is verse 23 of Luke chapter 13. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. And when we see this word strive here, really what it means is that we should agonize to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think of a wrestler who is agonizing to get his hand raised at the end of the match, signaling that he has won the match. And for those of you keeping track, that's one wrestling reference so far. Well, that's one wrestling analogy. I did wrestle, mention wrestling before, right? We are to make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. Why is it so agonizing? Let me be first be clear about this, and I said this earlier, that being saved is something that God does. Salvation is utterly outside of ourselves. Because Jesus died on the cross, we give our lives as a living sacrifice. It is so agonizing to enter the narrow gate because it requires self-humiliation, sacrifice, and repentance. Those are hard things. It requires leaving behind the love of sin, the love of the world, and the love of self. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If any man shall come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul says in Philippians 3:14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And just as a wrestler strives and agonizes and trains over and over again to win the match, so we should strive and agonize towards our goal, which is entering through the narrow gate. This message that I'm speaking this morning, it isn't for the person next to you. It isn't for somebody that you may have invited. This message is for you, and this message is for me. Jesus is saying, Rob Texaris, make sure that you are striving and making every effort to enter by the narrow gate. It is by our striving that we give evidence that your Christianity is real. It is by our striving that gives evidence that the Holy Spirit is striving within us. It's not like we can say somewhere in the past, somewhere back there I entered the narrow gate. No. I'm striving to enter. I want to be there with a passion. I want to be there. You need to strip down and get rid of all your baggage to go through this narrow gate. Many are going to try to enter this narrow gate, but won't be able to. There is a time limit on the offer of salvation. Those outside the door, they show up too late. So we have the narrow gate, but on the other hand, we have the wide gate. And this gate, this gate is easy. It can be entered with no difficulty, no agonizing. It's the easy way. You can enter this gate with the whole crowd. There's no self-denial required, no repentance required. You can fit all your pride. You can fit all your sins through this gate, all your self-righteousness. Not only can you fit them through, they're very welcomed. And the Bible says that there is a large crowd coming through this wide gate. And that is because it's the only other option 
for those who are not able to enter through the narrow gate. This wide gate leads to destruction. And this destruction is eternity in hell. My third point this morning is that there's not only a narrow gate, but a narrow way. I, I will read Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 again. I know I read this already, but I want to emphasize something else here. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. As we just discussed, there's only one gate, and that is Jesus. But after the gate, there's also a narrow way. There's a hard way, and only a few will find it. Many people believe and practice that the gate is narrow, but after this, the way is broad that leads to life. This is not the case. There are so many people that profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but when you look at their lifestyle, it appears that they are walking on the broad road. One time in their life, they repeated a prayer, and they believe that they are saved, even though the lifestyle is one of continual living, as they always have, and there is no change whatsoever. How many people live godless lives but believe they are saved because one time in their life they asked Jesus to come into their hearts. When people say that they are Christians and they live in the same sinful way that the world does, the name of Jesus Christ and his message of salvation from sin through faith in him are dishonored and shamed. There should be something different about a Christian. When a person becomes a Christian, the Bible says that they become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this means that the old way of living has died. A person is confirmed as a true disciple by living a transformed life made possible only by God. And this is what it means to be born again. Maybe you've heard that expression before, born again. Jesus said in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There should be evidence that you are a Christian and the way is hard. I have said it several times during our prayer meetings, but it is worth repeating. When we choose to follow Jesus, we are following him into a battleground, not a playground. If being a Christian was easy, then we wouldn't need the armor of God described in Ephesians chapter 6. It says in verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You see the Bible makes wrestling analogies also. But against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. There's a battle going on. If there wasn't, we wouldn't need the armor of God. If you are a true Christian, there will be suffering. There will be persecution. Salvation is a gift from God and it is free, but following Christ costs everything. I'll say that again, but following Christ costs everything. In fact, Jesus warns us to count the cost. He says in Luke 14, 33, so therefore anyone who does not renounce 
all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus did not soft-sell Christianity. Not even close. He did not soft-sell Christianity like some preachers do. There's a very clear point in this passage of Scripture, and that is that following Jesus requires a commitment to the highest possible cost. John Piper says, Authentic discipleship may exact from you the highest price relationally and the highest price physically. And if we look at the surrounding verses in chapter 14 of Luke, we see that Jesus is telling his followers, if you would be a Christian, I must have it all. Over the summer, my family and I, we watched the new sight and sound production, David. Maybe some of you have seen it. And throughout the production, David could be heard repeating the lyrics, he's after your heart. I'm not going to sing it. I don't sing very well, if you were hoping for that. But my boys sing it well. There is a battle going on for our hearts. God doesn't just want part of our life, or even most of our life. He wants the whole thing. Yet in today's culture, we have people who say they are Christians, but they live their life the way they want, and maybe, maybe they sprinkle a little Jesus in there. They go to church, of course, only when it's convenient and it fits their schedule, and it doesn't interfere with other events going on. There's no hungering and thirsting for righteousness and holy living, yet they believe that they are a Christian. This is not what the Bible says. J.C. Ryle writes in his book, Holiness, I grant freely that it costs to be little to be a mere outward Christian, a man has only got to attend a place of worship twice on Sunday. That was back then. Now only once, and if you're on time, that's a bonus. And to be tolerably moral during the week, and he has gone as far as thousands around him will ever go in religion. All this is cheap and easy work. It entails no self-denial or no self-sacrifice. If this is saving Christianity and will take us to heaven when we die, we must alter the description of the way of life and write, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to heaven. I'm not saying that a Christian doesn't struggle with sin. I'm not saying that at all. We all sin. I sin. They may even struggle with sin for a season, a Christian may. However, a true Christian is not comfortable in their sin. He's ashamed of it. He even mourns over it. A true Christian's life is marked with repentance. Repentance is not only a first step for the believer, it is an ongoing step in the Christian life. The fruitful Christian life isn't a sinless life, but a repentant life. So you see that the wide gate, it leads to a broad way, and on this broad way, there's plenty of room. There's no restrictions. There's room for diverse theology on this broad road. There's room for tolerance of sin on this broad road. There's room for immorality. Certainly doctrine doesn't matter on the broad road. Anything that you desire is acceptable on the broad road. The radical lifestyle, that certainly doesn't exist on the broad road. 
There is nothing to worry about on the broad road. We're all on the happy road to heaven because we're religious and we're basically good. That is not the case. As many of you know, I teach math to middle school students. And those keeping track, there's a math reference for you. I'm sure you're wondering when that was going to come up. I know some of you are thinking that must be torture being a middle school math teacher. Don't judge me. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I was, trying, I was going through a problem on the board and pouring my heart out, like I always do, trying to get through to my students. I then walked around to check if my students were taking good notes. And when I came to this one student, his notes didn't resemble anything that I had written on the board, and none of it was correct. I asked him, what is this? His response was, this is the way that I do it. Oh, okay. I'm usually very sarcastic, but in this moment, I had to show some great self-control. Here's what I felt like saying. I felt like saying, how's that working out for you? You're failing miserably, and yet you think your way is fine? However, if you think about it, we often do the same exact thing. On the broad road, your way, it is fine. It's absolutely fine. I heard a preacher once say that the theme song in hell will be, I did it my way. Hot in here. My fourth point is that there are many that think they're going to heaven, but the sad reality is that they are not. We come to a terrifying part of Scripture here. In fact, one could argue that what I'm about to tell you about is the most terrifying part of Scripture in the New Testament. There are many deceived people out there. You see, it's not like those people inside the church are in the narrow road, and those people outside the church are on the broad road. What this is saying that within the church, there are only a few on the narrow road. That's what the scripture is saying. And we know that because of these verses. As we continue our passage leading up to the judgment, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Whenever a person's name is used twice in a row in Scripture like we just had here, it's not just a casual acquaintance. Lord, Lord is used to describe a close relationship. They claim the name of Christ. These are not Muslims. They're not Buddhists. These are not atheists. These are those who would gladly say, I am a Christian. They do many great works in Jesus' name. They build huge churches and ministries in Jesus' name. They claim to have a relationship with Jesus, but they are none of his, and they never were. They never came to him in faith, despite their outward works. You see, we must have more than a mere profession of belonging to and following Christ. 
We can say that we know Christ, but the real question is, does Christ know you? There will be many that seek to enter the kingdom but won't be able to. And look, this is not my opinion. Let me say this again. This is not my opinion. Jesus is saying this. There are many that think they are going to heaven when they die, and they are not. And this is the same many that are on the broad road, and the same many that will cry out, Lord, Lord. It goes on to say in verse 28 of Luke 13, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This indeed is terrifying and not a popular message. Did I mention that this is my first time ever preaching this morning? <laughs> You're probably wondering right now why I would pick, and I picked this. Pastor Nate did not have me preach on this. I picked this. You're probably wondering why I would pick such a terrifying passage to preach about my first time preaching. Well, I said this earlier. I care about you. I picked this passage because I care, and we need to know the truth. It would have been much easier for me to come up here and preach a message that will tickle your ears and give everybody a warm, cozy feeling in their heart. I could have preached that. I could have mixed in a lot of my great jokes. Those who teach with me, those who know me well, I have a lot of great jokes. My wife doesn't think so, but I, they, I think so. I could have told great jokes, some funny stories. I could have had everybody in here laughing and feeling good about themselves. That, that would have been nice. In fact, that's what a lot of the false prophets do that is described in Matthew 7.15. It says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. These are eloquent speakers, and they never tell you anything that you don't want to hear. I like the way Paul Washer describes them. They will make your church look like a six flags over Jesus. They'll keep you entertained and encourage you to live your best lives now. You'll have the best time ever at church. My last point is that a day of God's judgment is coming. And on that day, he will reveal his glorious justice and his amazing grace before all humankind. All of what I have said this morning and all of what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount concludes with Judgment Day. It's like Jesus is saying everything that he has said so far leads up to this. I read this at the beginning, but I'm going to read it again now that we have the words and the context of this. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, again it says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, what we've been saying, what Jesus has been saying on the Sermon on the Mount, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great 
was the fall of it. You see, Jesus gives a parable of two builders and two houses, one built on the rock and one built on the sand. These houses on the outside, they appear to be the same. A person who's living morally may appear to live in a house that resembles that of a Christian's house. But the foundation, the part that you can't see, is different. The house of the true Christian is built on Christ's righteousness alone through faith alone. It is built on Christ's righteousness alone through faith alone. The true Christians are the ones that hear and obey. They are like a man that builds his house upon the rock, and when the terrifying storm of God's judgment comes, they will stand. The foolish man, on the other hand, he hears the words of Jesus, but they don't obey. Their house is built on sand. The foundation of that house, it will be revealed in the storm. And the storm is coming. In the Old Testament, writers described God's wrath using the image of a great storm, such as was in the days of Noah. The storm that destroyed the house on the sand, it is a picture of divine judgment. And we're familiar with storms here on Long Island. A hurricane, it brings destruction, but people rebuild. When God's judgment comes, there will be no second chance. For the unbeliever, it will be a great, it will be a great fall. We all have an appointment with death, and that is appointment that we all will keep. And after that is the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just that is a point for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And on that judgment day, the Lord will either say, Depart from me, I never knew you, or well done, thy good and faithful servant. He will either let you into his kingdom of heaven, or he will cast you to hell. There is no other option. There's no choice C. So my question to you this morning is, what is your life built upon? Is your life built on the rock, Jesus Christ and his righteousness? James tells us in the Bible that this life we are living, it's but a vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it is gone. This life that we're living is a blip on the radar. However, eternity is forever. And maybe after hearing what I've said this morning, you realize that your house is not built on the rock. Maybe you have been running from God, or you have a hardened heart towards God. The deceitfulness of sin, it can harden any one of us. Maybe you have been trusting in something else to get you to heaven. Or you don't believe there's a hell. Maybe you think that you're a Christian, but you're really not. Maybe God is speaking you to you this morning. The good news is 
that you're still alive. So there's still time. However, no one is guaranteed tomorrow. No one's guaranteed tomorrow. If you would like to become a Christian today, if you would like to be saved from the storm of God's judgment, here's how you build your house upon the rock. Repentance and faith. Turn from your sins to Jesus. You need to admit to Jesus that you're a sinner and that you could never build anything that stands a chance of surviving this end-time judgment on your own. Receive by faith the resurrected Jesus into your life and ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Listen to his words and do what it says. I want to leave you this morning with some encouragement. Because of Jesus Christ and his loving sacrifice of himself on the cross, those who humble themselves and come to him in repentance and faith can await judgment day with confidence and joy. God's people will live with him forever where sin and death and suffering will never plague humanity again. If you're not sure where you will spend eternity, I would love to talk to you more about that. I'm available. You can speak to myself, Pastor Nate, there's others. As we prepare for our final song this morning, I encourage you to examine your heart. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that is not sure where they will spend eternity, that today would be the day and that they come to Jesus in repentance and faith. I thank you, God, that you have provided a way to withstand the storm of Judgment Day. We know that Judgment Day is coming, Father God, and we could never withstand it on our own. God, I pray that you'd work in the hearts of people in this room this morning. I pray that you'd work in the hearts of people that are listening to this message on YouTube. I pray that you'd work in my heart. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.